Bridge, which is a giant inflatable Stonehenge. Oh my god. Hi, this is Van Batam coming to you flat on her butt from Sacrilege at the Sydney Festival. This is Bill, and there are only moments oh of god. oxygen left in my bloodstream <laughs> before a near breakdown and a possible puncture. But if you need a workout, Hyde Park's the place to be, I would suggest. It's a lot of fun. It's also a lot of hard work. Um, kids have a lot more energy. I know, I knew that. Body but yeah, and lower center of gravity. So, you know, they have an unfair advantage over the rest of us, I think. Um, but you know, it's good. 10 minutes a session is definitely long enough. Um, it keeps the line moving. Kids are loving it. I need, a, I need a nap. I need a change of clothes. I need a bottle of water and a hug from my mum. Hello, welcome to Guardian Australia's podcast from Sydney Festival. My name's Vicky Frost and you've just heard Helen Davidson jumping up and down on sacrilege Jeremy Della's life-size inflatable Stonehenge. How was that? Uh, it was insane. It's um, it's huge. It's impressive to look at. It's impressive to jump on. It's very difficult to actually jump on for the full ten minutes that you get when you jump when you, they let you on. Um, the, the kids loved it. There were kids running around all over the place, shrieking. They were having a ball. Um, we all got very tired very quickly. It's a hot day in Sydney today. Um, jumping is hard work. And if you want pictorial evidence of that, you only need to head to our live blog. Where um, you you, <laughs> you really did put your body on the line, I thought. You, you looked exhausted, frankly. <laughs> I was knackered. I haven't been that tired in, that, in so long. Um, although I have to give credit where it's due. Uh, Bill Code, who was doing a lot of the video for us at the Sydney Festival, um, really did, in every sense of the word, put his body on the line. Um, I think he's going to be hurting for quite a while. So there you go. If you can't afford the gym, live anywhere near the centre of Sydney, just pop in. You'll be fit by the end of the festival. Marvellous. Coming up on the podcast, we'll be looking forward to the week ahead and choosing our pick of the programme. Uh, we'll also be talking to festival director Lieben Bertels, who'll be dropping in to tell us what it's like to put together an arts festival on this scale. But first, we look back at some of our favourite bits of the festival so far. And I know, Helen, you had a lovely Saturday uh, at the Domain. I did. That was uh, the bi- one of the big parties, I think, for the festival. It was Summer Sounds in the Domain. Uh, it was a free concert, um, which was great because it's something. it means that everyone in Sydney can actually attend part of the festival. Um, Chaka Khan, the soul legend, diva, um, extraordinaire, she headlined. Uh, it started off with Hot Dub Time Machine. Um, He's an Australian DJ and he takes people on sort of a chronological history of hits uh, from the 60s, uh, no, from the 50s, sorry, from the 50s until now, playing one song from every year. Um, Saturday was a shortened version of that. It was a 45-minute set, but it was so much fun. Because you can see him, uh, even though he played at the Domain, he he is actually, he's got gig here. I think he's doing Saturday nights at Paradiso or something, isn't he? Uh, We're booked in. I'm very excited about it. I can't wait. That's our Saturday night, I think. Um, anyone who's got tickets to that, I think, is going to have a great time. I think it's sold out, though, unfortunately. Yeah, I think possibly. Possibly. Um, so how was it, though? How was Chaka Khan? Chaka Khan was incredible. Um, the, crowd, the crowd had a great time. She really commanded the stage, I think, and, you know, that voice is incredible and it's just faultless. Uh, she's got a great backing band. Um, 
I think everyone just had a lot of fun. She had a lot of fun. I know she's said in a couple of recent interviews that she's not, you know, she doesn't enjoy playing some of her oldest hits. She's a bit over it, um, but she does it anyway because the fans love it. Um, but well, they definitely did. And that's what she's paid for. I mean, if you go to a Jackie Kong game, you know, you expect her to pay the big numbers. Exactly. You want to hear I'm Every Woman, um, which I think that was at the point where the entire crowd, which well, was about 60,000 odd people, that got everybody on their feet. Anything else you've seen that you've been particularly you've particularly enjoyed? Um, ben Kaplan and the Casual Smokers played at the Spiegel tent behind us here last week. Uh, they were very impressive. He's um, a very talented Canadian folk bluesman. Um, with the most enormous beard, really the most enormous beard. Biggest beard you've ever seen. It's that with the hair as well. The hair is, you know, it's it's bigger than most motorcycle helmets. It's it's enormous. It's you know, it's a character in its own. He is an astonishing looking man, astonishing. And I say that as, a, as someone with a husband with a big beard, but it's quite astonishing. Uh, it had lots of charm, you enjoyed it? I did, yeah. I found him to be not quite as personable. Um, it was, you know, the Spiegel tent is a very intimate venue and the gig wasn't as intimate as I think the venue deserves. Um, having said that, you know, he spoke to the crowd, he was very engaging, um, he's got a great act. Um, I just didn't by the end of the gig, I didn't know much about him beyond the fact that he's very loud, he's got a big beard, he's Canadian, and he's great at, at what he does. Sounds like a great guy, hey? <laughs> On that basis. Um, so I've also seen a couple of things uh, I've quite liked. Um, in fact, I've seen, I saw something that I think is probably... I've been in Australia now nine months, and I think I've seen, I went to see the best new Australian stage work I've seen since I've been here. Because uh, some of it's been a bit disappointing. Uh, but Sean Parker's I Am, um, which was in the Opera House, uh, in the drama studio, was this really interesting uh, dance piece with this sort of really fabulous orchestra. And the whole idea was it was kind of about looking at yourself, looking at what I means. And it's not, I mean, that sounds awful. It sounds like the worst hour you're going to spend in a theatre ever. And it sounds very sort of um, individual and navel-gazy. And I just didn't really know what I was going to get. And actually, it was fantastic. It was all about sort of collaboration and how we all work together. Um, and the score was really fantastic. It was a new score for the production. Um, there were some spoken text bits that I normally really, I really don't like and I kind of got along with in this instance. Um, so highly recommend. If that goes on tour near you, definitely go and see it. Um, and I also saw some great stuff at Carriage Works. I saw Le Voix Humaine on, uh, which I think is just closed, um, which was gorgeous. It was in Dutch. Um, with subtitles and you're basically watching uh, a woman's final conversation with her lover who's about to marry another man the next morning and it's her final conversation before she kills herself basically you know when she hangs up she's going to commit suicide I mean it's not the jolliest Saturday night I've spent in <laughs> that does sound quite bleak you were in a park I was watching this um but it was very beautifully done it had all these Hitchcock overtones it was fantastically staged um, and it was a really classy thing and part of what I think is a really great programme down at Carriage Works and I'm quite excited about what all that holds uh, so Jane you only arrived uh, this morning and yet we've sent you out already and you've been seeing things so what have you been watching today? Last afternoon I went to the Seymour Centre to see all that fall although I'm not sure much I'm not sure how much it was seeing it because it's a radio play and there are no performers but it's a radio play uh, so so you go in and you sit on rocking chairs don't you but it's 
in the light, which I found was interesting because I'd have expected it to be in the dark for some reason. It plays, it plays a lot with light and the sound interacts with the lighting design. So there's a big bank of bright lights at the front of the space and then there are light globes hanging all over the roof. And tell us a bit about what All That Fall is. It's, it's a play and it's a radio, it is a radio play in fact. It's a radio play by Beckett. It's, I think it might have been his first radio play uh, and it's a very soft story and you sort of it, it starts off you think this woman's really mean and then you sort of come to know her and her partner and you realize this sort of aching loneliness that's in there and in this town it's quite a sad story but it's also very lovely and uh, there's a lovely rhythm to the piece and sound effects am I right there are a few sound effects it's sort of there are there's this beautiful moment where there's a train comes into the station and you feel it shaking your body but then there are also lots of times when it's just quiet and it's just the voices and it's not sort of trying to play it up or make it bigger than it is it's just about the people and what they're saying I find it interesting as a, uh, the idea of it as a communal piece because you know I listen to lots of radio plays total radio head but I normally do that on my own. I find it interesting, this idea of sitting in a room where it's light with lots of other people. How's that? It was, it was really interesting, and I was thinking that when I was sitting there, sort of when you listen to radio plays now in particular, it's often with your headphones and you're sort of on a bus or doing something else. And to sit in a room with people who are paying so much attention but just being so quiet and still and there's just this gentle rocking of some people and some people are just sitting still and it's this, it was a very strange sort of communal feeling of being still together and then when it finished no one really wanted to make any noise and there was quite a long pause before we there were a few claps and a few people just sort of got up quietly and um, unfortunately they went out into the foyer where really terrible pop music was playing and that sort of let down the end of the experience a bit. It's an interesting question where whether you clap or not, because if you've not seen any, any performers, I mean, who, who are you clapping? That's an interesting thing. If you go to a lot of film festivals, people often clap at the end of films in film festivals, but it didn't feel right to clap. I didn't clap just because it felt like such a quiet piece and it felt like it didn't... It, it, I felt like I needed to acknowledge it by being quiet rather than by making noise. I think that might be my Britishness, but I, I don't like it when people clap at films. <laughs> I find it very strange, very strange indeed. <laughs> All That Fall by Pan Pan Theatre is at the Seymour Centre and it runs till the 19th of January. Uh, so we walk into the space and it's on the stage in the Everest Theatre and the floor is covered in a children's play mat where your kids would put cars and make a village and these wooden chairs which are un varnished wood, very rustic, beautiful sort of kit. They look like they're made from kits and these black cushions with skulls on them and then there's light bulbs hanging from the ceiling and a big bank of yellow lights shining on us and nothing really seems like it fits together but it just feels very calm and everyone, there's a sense of respect going into the space. It starts quite odd there are animal noises but they're all done by performers in the cast I think there's a donkey and a cow and we've got some audio here and then a chat with director Gavin Quinn and right after that we'll be back talking to festival director Levan Bertels
poor woman, all alone in that ruinous old house. I first read it as a teenager, I came across it by accident in, in a bookshop and uh, what, what struck me about the play was um, that it was a thriller, that the, very unusual in the Beckett canon, which I didn't realise at the time, but in the end it's almost like a whodunit, what happened in the end, what happened to this child and uh, what was interesting was the range of characters and the humour and uh, unlike other Beckett uh, plays there's ten characters in this play and uh, it's a lot of it's drawn from his um, real life experiences, there are real people that he met, uh, that he remembered from his childhood. So it's a very poignant, very personal play. And when I first read it, I actually thought it was um, very funny, very moving, but also it has this incredible plot. It's uh, often been described as um, a road radio play, a journey um, to the train station and back, um, uh, whereby Maddie Rooney tries to find, uh, is going to pick up her uh, blind husband, only Beckett would put a, a blind character in a radio play. But um, I certainly I found it very, very moving and very funny. Hi, my name is uh, Gavin Quinn, and I'm the director of uh, All That Fall, which is Beckett's first radio play, which was commissioned by the BBC in 1956-57, and first broadcast um, in 1957. And what we've done, I suppose, is we've taken the radio play and uh, put it into a theatre, we made a kind of installation of the radio play and a completely different type of recording. Um, and what the audience, I suppose, um, witness is a kind of communal listening to a radio play. They are themselves almost part of the set and um, the audience, a bit like a kind of social sculpture, are all sort of listening and experiencing the play in a very particular atmosphere we've created. So it's kind of like a radio happening or um, a kind of listening chamber we've we've made for people to really um, focus in on the play in a different way. So do you think it could be almost more involving to actually be in a room with these lights and listening to it rather than watching it happen in front of them? I think so. I mean, the, the Beckett never wanted the um, his radio plays to be staged. Uh, I think he said that uh, to stage them is to kill them. And uh, in this uh, particular production, um, it actually increases your focus and um, makes it easier for you to concentrate uh, on the text and really be brought away because it's like the old adage that radio is a very visual medium and in this the kind of the, um, the sound and the experience uh, really bring you in at a very deep level into the text and you can really visualize um, the imagery which Beckett's creating through the text. Something, something tale of things done long ago and ill done. How can I go on? Hi, my name's Robbie, I'm from Redfern. I went to see Lee Fields play Sydney Festival at the Spiegel Tent. 
everyone was, was getting their groove on, everyone was dancing, it was wild, it was fantastic. The man is a sex machine. He's just, I think everyone in the audience, both men and women, after the show, we were all pregnant, all of us. It was fantastic. You're listening to the Guardian Australia's Sydney Festival podcast. I'm here in Festival Village at a Sydney Festival, and I'm here with the festival's director, Levin Bertels. Hello. So tell me, Levin, a bit about putting together uh, a festival as big as this and as boisterous as this. Um, well, it's, a, it's teamwork, obviously. This is quite a big festival, as you rightly point out. It's probably amongst the biggest, um, certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and we have a wonderful team of 26 people that work on this for all year. Um, and then building from there to a team of about 100 in the office and 400 on the ground when the festival kicks in. Um, And that's absolutely necessary because we have about half a million visitors. We have 107 events. That's Chris Lyle, isn't it? Chris is an amazing banjo player that just gave a wonderful concert in our lovely Spiegel tent. And he decided to do a little encore outside on the steps of the Spiegel tent and we're hearing the cheers and claps from the audience. Gorgeous. And tell me about sort of how you go about programming, how you kind of get that mix of, uh, particularly I think with Sydney, kind of uh, family uh, friendly and, and sort of fun kind of stuff with more highbrow arts. I think that's really what makes Sydney Festival unique and certainly what attracted me to this job coming from Europe was um, that, as you point out, very unique mix of broad entertainment and arts. Um, this is an arts festival, but in a sort of, um, em- I would say it's embedded in a whole range of summer activities. That's how the festival started. Um, the festival started as a way to reinvigorate very much um, Sydney because it was a bit dull and boring in summer in the 70s. And in their wisdom, the good burgers of Sydney decided that we could do so much better and so they started the Sydney Festival. Tell me about what you've seen already. So we're in now um, the second week of the festival. We had the big gig in the domain at the weekend. Um, quite a lot of free stuff and it was sunny and it was lovely. It was very Sydney, I thought, as well. Yes, we've been very lucky with the weather. Sydney has given it its best. Um, we really have that lovely summer weather, which is, you know, blue skies, 28 degrees Celsius, not too hot, night breeze, nice breeze in the evening. Um, and that's, of course, the one element that we can't control or curate. Um, but for the last couple of years has been with us. Um, and for myself, one of the frustrations, obviously, is that I can't enjoy it half as much as I want. Um, obviously, because there's 107 different projects in a festival of only about 18, 19 days um, and 370 performances. So how do you choose which to go to? Tell me how well, you do that. Well, um, there's a lot of diplomacy involved. And <laughs> I again, I, because you really want to, you know, give a hug and a cuddle and encourage every artist going on stage. If you invite them to your festival, you want to show that love in person and not just, you know, send flowers and a note to a dressing room, um, which is also lovely, but it needs to be both. Um, so the only way you can do that in a very big city, geographically big city like uh, such as Sydney, is to actually be driven around in a car like mad and make a very careful minute-to-minute planning um, between different shows. So often I try and at least be involved with five different shows on a day. 
Um, and that's between a media call in the morning, uh, dress rehearsal in the afternoon for another show, maybe, you know, helping on stage one artist, being in the foyer to meet your audience at another show nearby, and then quickly rushing to another artist, sneaking in, seeing a bit of that show for the end applause and congratulating them uh, together with the audience. It's a, it's a careful um, sort of magician's act of smoke and mirrors and you don't quite know yourself where you are. Tell me about how um, you can see something at one festival and it can be, you know, it can be fabulous and you can see it at another festival and it sort of somehow doesn't quite work. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? How, how even though it's the same production, it can be quite different. Does it mean you have to sometimes let go of projects that you desperately like to put in the programme, but you know they're just not quite right for Sydney, really? Absolutely. And that's also where you need, as a team, to programme beyond your personal taste. Um, I would find that hard, I think. <laughs> I think I'd always be thinking, it is hard. I would see that. Oh, absolutely, it is hard. But I think that's not uh, dissimilar from a chef. If you have, if you run um, a successful restaurant, it's not just about what produce can I offer for what price and what what can I cook, what can I show off as a cooking skill. It's also about what other people want to eat. If you're just cooking for yourself, that works in a small bistro type restaurant and that's lovely. But if you're running a really big restaurant, you need to have a number of options for people. You need to have a constantly changing menu. You need to, obviously to cook with the best produce and with the most dedicated team. And tell me what's on your menu, your personal menu, what, what are the things you really, really want to see? Away, off, so your festival director's hat off, and um, literally you have a large hat on. One of the things that I um, genuinely enjoy a lot, both as a member of the audience and as a festival director, is any performing art show that uses live music, whether it's theatre or dance, whether it's contemporary or classical, whether it's amateur or professional, whether it's indoors or outdoors, I'm, you know, I'm a performing arts curator, but I want music to be live as much as possible. So I tend to steer away from dance productions, for instance, that use pipe music, you know, whack on a CD. That's just not good enough for a festival. The other one for me is an element of surprise. There's nothing more boring than a show that is 100% predictable, even if it's a good show. Can you have a surprise though if you've programmed it? Do you Absolutely. still get Absolutely. Well, mind you, we've commissioned 23 new Australian works over my first festival and this one. So 23 works that take a leap of faith from our side as programmers and that will be a surprise because we can't possibly know how they turn out on stage. And are there any of those you're particularly uh, invested in, you're looking forward to see particularly? Absolutely Black Diggers, um, which is a very important... Um, Black Diggers is um, a new play that sort of explores the myth of the Anzac. It looks at um, indigenous servicemen during First World War who are really often forgotten from history, aren't they? Well, we're only, we've only started to actually um, research their role and it was a story that hadn't been told. It's not that we've forgotten the story, the story has just never been told. So when we started this project, um, which is a very personal story to me, I'm originally from Flanders, as you might hear, um, and we live in Flanders Fields, we have a family house there, um, and in the village next to mine, um, there's an Aboriginal soldier buried in a British cemetery, actually, um, that came out from South Australia, aged 16, so technically speaking, in today's speak, he would be a child soldier. He signed up um, with the Anzac or the Imperial Forces to fight for a country that didn't recognize him as um, a citizen or a human being. And when we started exploring that story, 
the numbers were like, oh, there's probably 480 to 500 of those. Over two years of research, together with the War Memorial in Canberra and with a dramaturg and a researcher, um, we've come to the conclusion, together with historians, that there's probably more than a thousand of them. Just over two years, we've actually doubled um, that number. And um, we've come with a lot of stories that, are, that have been untold and it's very meaningful for Aboriginal fam families today to recognise the role of those Anzac soldiers. Um, there are many, you know, very sad stories about the war, but there are also very uplifting stories. Truly, um, the Australian Army was the first equal opportunity employer in this country. They gave these guys equal chances, equal pay. It was very hard for everybody, but they fought together. They weren't put in a separate regiment or battalion like the Gurkhas or the Native American trekkers. They were really amongst um, other Australian soldiers of European descent. Um, for a very simple reason, you couldn't actually enlist as an Aboriginal, um, but these guys tr truly benefited from that and that was the start of um, the recognition for Aboriginal culture. Of course they suffered terribly when they returned. Um, white soldiers would get um, a pension and a plot of land. Uh, a lot of Aboriginal soldiers got nothing, no medals, no pension, no health care. Um, but then, again, after that, um, the start of the first re return servicemen's leagues, and particularly in Queensland, which had a very severe white Australia policy, um, stories of returned servicemen whites um, that would say, these are our comrades, they fought with us. It, these rules in these RSL clubs are ridiculous. If I can't drink with my black friend from the trenches inside an RSL, I'll have my drink outside with him. So there's lots of interesting, fascinating stories. Sadly, it took three more wars for a start of a sort of emancipation movement and a referendum after Vietnam or during Vietnam. Um, but the role of the Anzac soldiers um, in World War One hadn't been told, so we're very happy that we can, you know, contribute to that story. And uh, so that's quite a serious play. And you're right, you know, it's good, I think, as well, that the festival does have that other side from the playful side. Um, but tell me, what's the thing you want to watch when you're having a drink and you're kicking back? I mean, is there a point where you just say, oh, no, I slightly want something that I just sink into a little bit? Well, again, the village is very much a place where I would li like to hang out if I'm off duty, which doesn't happen in my festival, but typically I will you know, get some time in other people's festivals where I can enjoy a village like this. Um, we're very proud of this village. We've just tripled the size. We've made it more family friendly. It's not just a beer garden anymore. It's very much something where kids can enjoy and families can enjoy um, the festival vibe. Um, and I've got kids. I love to come here myself. Levin, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you do get to see everything you want to. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Fahad. Hi, my name is Muji. And you're listening, listening to the Sydney, Sydney Guardian Festival, Festival Podcast. Podcast. Wrong again. The Guardian Good Sydney, Sydney Festival, Festival Podcast. Podcast. We're going to be here on Guardian Australia's Sydney Festival podcast all week. So we better think about what we're looking forward to seeing in the festival. Helen, what are you looking forward to? I'm not entirely sure why I'm looking forward to this, but I am. Um, on Thursday, we have Hurricane Transcriptions and Labyrinthus 2. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, the first half of that is 
by um, Sonic Youth Lee Ronaldo, who has composed a, um, I guess, a soundtrack to Hurricane Sandy, which hit New York in 2012, um, and it's sort of a you know, I guess as an accompaniment to the experience that he had during that, which sounds incredibly confronting and not that fun, but I think <laughs> it sounds incredible and I'm really looking forward to that. Properly challenging, isn't it? It's Mike Patton from Faith No More being a bit mad, I think. It is. He's uh, written a tribute to Italian poet um, Dante Alighieri, um, which, you know, that's Dante's Inferno. That's not the cheeriest of topics either. Um, but, you know, I'm a sucker for anything that Mike Patton does, so I'm, I can't wait to see that one. And if you're interested in reading more about that, there's an interview with Lee Ronaldo on the website now. Um, so, Jane, what have you got your eye on? I'm really looking forward to seeing The Piper, which is a, a local work by a company called My Darling Patricia. It's an immersive theatre show for children, which are all words that I love, uh, based on the Pied Piper. Um, and you're a big fan of Australian children's work, aren't you, Jane? You think Australia really has a real strength here, and it's an interesting strength to be in children's theatre. Yeah, it is, and it's... Uh, I think Adelaide in particular has it and that's why I have a love of it but it's all around the country and I think it's I think we really need to if you want to build audiences children are an easy way to do it and it's also just really smart because you keep on getting new children where adults just stay adults. Um, it looks really charming production I think half the audience sits on the stage don't they and wear headphones and it's all it, it looks great and the puppet for the oh gorgeous looks gorgeous. Beautiful bear made out of scraps of material I think everyone's falling in love with him so that's uh the piper is actually part of one of my festival picks although it's a very broad festival picks i must say um the piper is part of um the about an hour festival which is playing at carriage works um uh this coming weekend and it's it's great programming to me it's what festivals are about it's short shows across a whole range of things there's opera um there's kind of mad cabaret there's children's there's theater there's dance and all the shows are about an hour, obviously. Um, they're scheduled in such a way that you can see two or three in a day. Um, they're cheap. It's everything festival is. It's going and finding something that you just wouldn't expect to watch and you'd never watch normally and having a fantastic time or a terrible one. But, you know, coming out and having an opinion, <laughs> either way, I like that. That's sort of great for me. Um, so that's what I'll be doing this weekend. What else is on your list, Helen? Uh, well, on Saturday, I am going to see the Sunra Orchestra. Um, I love a big band. Um, this sounds like the biggest of all the big bands that you could possibly see. Um, it's at the State Theatre on Saturday in Sydney. Um, I think that's going to be one of my favourites. Uh, yeah, another bonkers thing. I'm basically, you're basically just going to see slightly <laughs> crazy things. So that's the way to go. And Jane, what else is on your list? Uh, sort of on the opposite end of the scale from the Piper is Dido and Aeneas, which is the big headline opera for the um, for the festival and I'm mainly looking forward to it for the promise of 7,500 litres of water on stage. Yeah, so to explain this a little bit, this is Sasha Walsh's um, choreographed opera and so I think it's the opening, se it's certainly a sequence in it. Uh, the dancing happens within this big sort of fish tank basically. I mean it sounds gorgeous. It sounds incredible and also sort of slightly scary, which opera isn't normally. Opera is a pretty safe art form, but to do it in water, I think, might have us all a bit on edge. I think it will be an interesting thing. It sounds like a really fascinating idea. I've got to say, having had a look at the London press for it, 
it might be a bit more idea over substance but we'll wait and see maybe it's been tweaked maybe it's a new thing you know these shows do evolve don't they um and i mean a sort of actually at the opposite end of the scale for that is uh my final festival pick and this really is to me all quintessential brilliant festival stuff it's called fun park and it's in a disused shopping center in bidwell which is in western sydney and you know i don't know why i'd go there otherwise um it's at an abandoned shopping center that's just being transformed basically there's going to be lots of little different things happening everywhere and interactions with artists and with community and bits of dance and you just sort of wander around and it just sounds great it's properly rooted in sydney it's not an imported show it sounds like there's loads of risk and it could go quite wrong and quite brilliant. Sounds perfect to me. And that is on Saturday. It's on the 18th and 19th of January and it's free as well. You just need to register. Thanks very much, Helen and Jane. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for all your lovely thoughts. And we'll see you later in the festival. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be joined by Andrew Frost, uh, who's talking to us about visual art, and Van Badham, who's here seeing performance. And we'll see you both later in the week. Can't wait for it. Looking forward to it. The most sarcastic <laughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs>